0: Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. This is episode number 36, featuring the political scientist, educator, and best selling author of The Myth of Male Power and the Boy Crisis, Dr. Warren
1: Farrell. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives grow strong and transcend our limitations in tribes around the world drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time a new day is beginning this is the Renaissance of men you are the Renaissance
2: Rather than sort of critiquing feminism and saying what was wrong with feminism, where it had gone off off off, um, off its base and made a transition from equality to politics and political consideration um, consider, considerations, um, I focused on the ten major issues that I felt needed to be addressed and why those issues were so important psychologically and in terms of helping people understand uh, what the, what the larger issue was. So for example, I looked at the boy crisis, and one of the reasons that it's so important to focus on the boy crisis is that boys are doing terribly. In they're doing terribly um, educationally, economically, uh, they're doing terribly in terms of physical health and mental health, and this is happening all around the world. Uh, So I explained a little bit of that, but I also explained that boys' issues are so important because for example, when we talk about a men's issue, say somebody says, um, "I fear I'm a man and I fear rejection when I ask a woman out." Well, what what happens for a woman when she hears that is she flips into all the times that uh, a man came on too strongly for her, to her that overwhelms her, that manipulated her with drinks. And she has very little empathy for the guy that says, you know, um, I felt uh, an experience of rejection because she wants him to hear her experience of being um, I- ignored and uh, the insensitivity of so many guys. And so, um, but when she hears this from a boy's perspective and she's a mother and she has a son and she sees her 15 year old son being really afraid to call a girl that he's really attracted to, she tends to be uh, saying to herself, she tends to be very protective of him and want him to really feel the importance of not being uh, rejected. And um, and so she suddenly understands these issues from her son's perspective. So in brief, when we discuss adult male issues, adult females are programmed to want protection from men. But when you discuss boys' issues, adult females who are mothers want to protect their sons. So the instinct goes from resistance, because I want protection from a male. I don't fall in love with whining males. I fall in love with alpha males. I fall in love with men who are willing to protect me. I don't want to hear have a man be talking about, um, be preoccupied with himself men who are preoccupied with themselves and their own feelings are not usually likely to be protectors. And so the reason for the importance of boys issues is to have uh, people be, have their, their protector instinct um, drawn out rather than their resistance to men complaining drawn out.
0: For me, Studying this renaissance of men has been a bit like high altitude skydiving. From the 50,000 foot view several years ago, I got a good lay of the land. I could pick out the major geographic features and begin to build a picture of the whole. And then, sometime last year, I jumped, and slowly the landscape has come into sharper focus. To stay within the metaphor, the feeling has been like coming to see the fields that give way to forests, the streams that feed into rivers, and the hills that ascend in height, leading up to mountains. I am confident that the Renaissance is real because I've seen it, and I can see it. And one of my favorite things about this, to depart now from the metaphor, is to speak about the holistic scope of the Renaissance when most men have only seen their silos. For example, several of the men's leaders we know and follow were told they were part of the manosphere before they even knew what a manosphere was. And many of us arrived into this historical moment thinking that that was the sum total of things ourselves. But in fact, the roots of what we are now experiencing stretch further back in time, decades in fact, to handfuls of men that made landmark contributions to understanding masculinity not just before the internet, but before digital media. These men wrote print books, appeared on terrestrial radio and broadcast television, and had their work reviewed in actual print newspapers, which were the only daily news game in town. This isn't to liken any of these men to abandoned technologies, merely to say that that's how long this fight has been going on. Men didn't suddenly awaken in 2016, 2006, or even 1996. It's been a long, slow, gradual rise in consciousness even before then, awakening to our predicament, and shall we say, its landscape And as I've studied the Renaissance, I've discovered that one man has been fighting longer than any other. He defected from the heights of the feminist movement, the National Organization for Women in the 1970s, once he discovered that it prized ideology over progress, and at great personal cost he set out into the world to share the truths that he knew about men, women, and families, bearing with him his sharp mind and caring heart. His name, of course, is Dr. Warren Farrell and he's the author of several best-selling books whose titles communicate their content without the need for explanation. The Myth of Male Power, Why Men Are the Way They Are, Why Men Earn More, The Startling Truth Behind the Pay Gap, Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say, and his most recent book, The Boy Crisis. The Financial Times of London named him one of the world's top 100 thought leaders. His books are published in more than 50 countries and 19 languages, He's taught at the university level in five disciplines and been interviewed multiple times by Oprah, Barbara Walters, Peter Jennings, Charlie Rose, Larry King, and most recently, Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's also chair of the coalition to create a White House Council on Boys and Men, and over two administrations has been working to create such a council. I hope that gives you a sense of the heights that he's worked to achieve, which are supported by the depth of his understanding of the issues that affect us as men. In our conversation, Warren and I discussed his early days at the National Organization of Women and how he became a feminist, how he develops his signature soundbites and catchphrases, a devastating question that inverts the notion of male privilege and demonstrates the hollowness of the idea, couples communication and some strategies for how to take criticism without being defensive, and finally how roughhousing creates empathy and how father involvement helps children, and especially boys, live longer. What's funny is that despite his monumental contributions, some men I meet don't know of Warren or his work. As the men's movement has itself moved to emphasizing fitness and sovereignty, I think in some ways this is indicative of us losing touch with our roots. But I believe we all need to know where we come from, and no matter where we find ourselves on this landscape, it's possible that none of us would be here without Warren. Thanks to Anthony Dream Johnson for the introduction and it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast the internationally best-selling author of The Myth of Male Power Why Men Are the Way They Are and The Boy Crisis Dr. Warren Farrell Dr. Farrell thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today
2: I based on our last connections uh, I'm looking very forward to it too Excellent well I just want to dive right into it because You and I met
0: a couple months ago on the occasion of me reading your book, The Boy Crisis. And as I read your book, I recognized that uh, there was so much more going on behind the scenes in your journey to create that book and your journey through feminism and then discovering uh, men's experience and writing about men's experience. And so where I'd actually like to start is to go through your entire uh, collection of books and let men know about the many books that you've written and your whole journey through that world of discovery so we can lead into discussing
2: uh, the boy crisis and its relevance to today. Sure, I, I think my career sort of started when I was teaching at Rutgers University and the women's movement surfaces. this was 1969, and Rutgers University is in New Jersey for people that are not familiar with it. Um, and the, uh, I was teaching um, uh, political science, which is my PhD is in political science, and the um, and when the women's movement surfaced, I was I was thinking of it. This is the beginning of an evolutionary shift um, from gender roles as rigid roles of the past, where both sexes had rigid obligations. Um, and this and, uh, and this will give us more flexible obligations or flexible opportunities uh, for our, our gender roles, and we'll no longer have to have women raising children and men raising money um, because survival, which was the dominant force, um, survival really um allowed will allow us um once once a country or a large group of people are able to master survival then survival no longer survival needs no longer need to dominate them and my father would say to me um you know you you can't be an author because um as a uh, if if you're an author you are, are highly unlikely to get a publisher and if you can't get a publisher you'll never find a wife and um and so and because it, it, he came from a survival culture, he was born in 1910. And by 1935, um, he'd been through two world wars and a, and a depression. And so for him, earning money was what men were about. You didn't choose to do what you wanted to do. You choose what to do, what you need to do. Uh, it was about obligations. It was about responsibility. The words rights, uh, the word rights was was were not in his parents' um, uh, mentality. Um, they were, um, uh, they were, uh, they weren't in his parent, they weren't in his parents' mentality. They weren't in his mentality. This, and they certainly weren't even, even in my mother's mentality. And so, uh, from, uh, so that was the beginning of, um, the, the struggle I had to become even a writer to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. but when the, um, when I was teaching at Rutgers and making some money modest as a, college professors' um, mm-hmm. uh, money is, um, my students, uh, and I hadn't done my doctoral dissertation yet, I was in the middle of doing it, uh, my students said, oh, you need to change your dissertation topic to um, something about the women's movement, because you, when you talk about the women's movement, you have fire in your belly. You really seem to know what it's about. You see its future in a way that we haven't heard expressed before. So I went to my doctoral committee and I asked them, you know, um, is it, would it be okay to change my dissertation topic? And they said, you know, uh, on what? And I said, on the women's movement and this political potential. And they said, Warren, it's a fad uh, it's going to be in here today and out, you know, out tomorrow. And I said, nope, it's the beginning. I, I felt it was the beginning of an evolutionary shift, uh, that would emanate from a survival, allowing both sexes roles to be more flexible. And they said, well, if that's the case, why aren't men's roles getting more flexible first? Uh, because, um, you know, men, men have all the power and they can do anything they want to do. And I said, um, I don't think it's that way. I think mm-hmm. basically the um, that neither sex right now feels it has power. Uh, both sexes feel they have obligations to play a role that some sexes, some people, uh, some women love raising children, some men love raising money, um, but there's no real choice. There is an expectation, there's pressure. Um, and I think that, that that when families become a little bit more secure economically, there's gonna be more flexibility. Mm -hmm. And um, they were sort of mostly protesting what I was doing and, you know, they were gentle, they loved me, uh, liked me at least. Um, And they uh, wanted me to have, you know, a good life and a good career. Um, But they also felt that this was a fad and it was not, quote, worthy of me. But mm-hmm. at that point in time, I was appointed assistant to the president of NYU. <laughs> and, um, okay. and so I, in some level, I became, um, you know, sort of like uh, too close to the president to argue with um, too, um, too firmly. So they basically rolled their eyes and said, OK, you go ahead and you know do what you want. And that led to the the research I did for my doctoral dissertation led to some of the, and my passion for the women's movement, because at that point, I joined the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City, and got deeply involved in feminist politics, and um, eventually was asked to uh, start some men's groups, uh, and those men's groups were very successful. And um, that that led to um, people um the the women's movement the now the national organization for women's new york city chapter which is what i was a part of it led to that chapter um saying things like you know would, would you run for uh our board of directors because you know you've done well with these men's groups and i said yes and um and then that that of course deepened my research and also deepened my passion uh for the uh women's movement And so that all led to my beginning to um, compile the information and the perspectives that led to The Liberated Man, which was my first book. Mm -hmm. And that came out in 1974 slash 75, right on the border of those two years. And, um, and that looked basically at, at the women's movement and its importance. And I think that the big contribution that was sort of memorable from that book was saying that, yes, um, there was a great deal of objection to women being treated as sex objects, you know, even as women were competing to be sex objects. But mm-hmm. that nevertheless, <laughs> there was a um, right. uh, big objection on the part of feminists to women being treated as sex objects. And I said, yes, that is true. And we need to really um, look at that carefully. And also we need to recognize that men are treated as success objects, um, mm-hmm. that both sides of the coin are, are true. Um, but they sort of like, oh, very nice little, um, you know, very, very nice little soundbite or pat, pat on the head.
0: we <laughs> are <laughs> good at the soundbites, by the
2: way. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, wh- what I do, by the way, on the soundbites is I, I develop, you know, I, I, I do, first I do my research. Uh, then I see where that research leads. And then I try to um, do that research as deeply as I can, making sure all the sources are accurate and done really responsibly. Then I write it up in long form and it's usually pretty convoluted. Then I try to simplify it, but keep the uh, the core accuracy of it. And then I see if I can develop the soundbite. So the sound bite is the last thing on my string of contributions it's um, and it often requires many many um, uh, many trials and errors before I get a sound bite that I feel is exactly accurate um, but at the same time really allows people to remember the point and they remember the starting point of what I want to say mm-hmm. and so I began to develop that with the liberated man that that sort of art, I hope art of um, you know of, of moving from thinking uh, research, to theory development, to theory um, um, streamlining, um, to theory documentation, to uh, soundbite. Just real quick to that point, I just just want to
0: say the soundbite that you developed, uh, rolemates versus soulmates, which I hope we'll get to when we discuss the myth of male power, I used that soundbite last night in a men's group that I was leading. And Mm. that just that little phrase, or when you say sex objects versus success objects, those little phrases are so incredibly powerful to communicate the ideas in this minimum number of words that just lands instantly. You almost don't even have to unpack sex objects versus success objects. You can, and the linguistics of it are just—it just—it just stays with you. And so, I just—that's one of the, the the things that I love most about your writing is that comes across in all the books so that turn of phrase that you to to take really uh, complex, nuanced ideas
2: and show both sides of them in opposition to each other. Thank you very much. I really do work hard on that because I you know, I feel like the job of an author, especially an author is also a, a change agent, is to um, a- allow people sort of a, a stepping stone um, from which they can sort of like capture the essential point. But then um, it's each stepping stone, each soundbite always has a great deal that can be built on it. Um, mm-hmm. It never stays, you know, if I say something like, Role mate to Soulmate, mate, um, and then the, the which is the title of my uh, couples communication workshops. Um, I, um, it, as I develop what that's about, you can really see how role mates were what we had in the past. Soulmate is what we're reaching toward, mm-hmm. and then the subtitle is the art and discipline of love. Uh, that, you know, that art, that love is not just about poetry. Uh, love is a a lot of discipline if you're really doing it well to to, uh, the discipline of appreciating each other, the discipline of knowing how to, uh, prepare yourself. For being able to hear the criticisms of your partner without becoming defensive, um, and the art of appreciating your partner—not knowing that that you're not just appreciating uh, him or her by saying, "You know, you have a, you make a great dinner," but you're appreciating the the crispiness of the skin of the turkey, the type of spices that are in the. Um, that are in the dressing, uh, the moistness of the dressing, and things like that allow your partner to really feel seen, not just, um, oh, you're a great cook, um, mm-hmm. which is fine, but it just doesn't go as far as we have the ability to make it go.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, appreciation anyway, for sure.
2: Go ahead, continue. And, um, anyway, this was um, that led to my first book, The Liberated Men. And uh, that was largely from a feminist perspective, um, but it was also uh, an encouraging men. To, um, to be secure enough to um, encourage women uh, to be who they wanted to be. And also simultaneously pointing out to men uh, that the degree that a, a woman makes money is the degree that y- um, you, not, you should not be threatened, but rather uh, freed to be able to uh, know that you can now do professions that make less money that you enjoy more. And I began the explanation of the more fulfilling a profession is, the less it pays. Because mm-hmm. the more fulfilling a profession is, the more people compete to be that. Um, and the more people compete to be that, that makes the supply great and the demand not necessarily very high. Um, because mm-hmm. everybody wants to do things like be an artist, a writer, an actor, an actress. And, um, and, and so those, uh, those professions are flooded uh, with uh people competing to do that to people competing to do podcasts and so on, and because they're so fulfilling um and you um uh, but uh, therefore they pay very little unless you are that one tenth of one percent of people that really makes it to the top of a uh, fulfilling discipline
0: mhm well, I think that's a really important distinction for for men who are grappling with issues of work in, women in the workplace and 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 dual incomes. To sort of step into that place like well this does open up more possibilities for you and i think that's a shade of nuance that also that gets missed but i but it's also you know at the time when you were writing about it you know i'm sure it had a lot more like today we're what 40 years on from that time 40 45 years on from that time i'm sure back then you know as you're as you're navigating these issues i guess in real time as they're emerging into the american consciousness it's a very different uh, it's a very different perspective which i think it's really easy you know, we're 45 years on into the feminist movement or even more, and we have the benefit of hindsight versus at the time, you know, it is very edgy. It is, it is a very important thing. And I, it's hard for us to see that looking backwards, I think.
2: Absolutely. Uh, you know, I started my work in this in 1969, which is more than a half century ago. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, so much has changed and so much has remained the same. And some has got, some things have gotten worse. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that have gotten worse, unfortunately, is we've, you know, one of the wonderful contributions of the feminist movement at the beginning uh, was its focus on empowering women. And it was, it always had an anti-male slant to it that men were the oppressors and um, and women were the oppressed, but that wasn't as dominant as it is now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the whole concept of, of uh, the world is dominated by a patriarchy is very commonly said now in almost yeah. every women's studies course in every junior high school and high school and college for sure. But the world um, was not dominated by a patriarchy. It was dominated by the need to survive, mm-hmm. and to survive, neither sex had power. Both sexes had obligations and responsibilities, and a men's obligation was to earn money that often his family spent while he died sooner. Uh, women's obligation was to raise children and not be honored and risk her life in childbirth. Um, men risked their life in the wars um, to protect the women and the children uh, that women bore. And so we both had um, uh, 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 obligations. My father, you know, when my father was talking to me about being a writer, he said, You're, and, and he criticized me for being, for teaching people Workshops in psychology. He said, "The job you're teaching people how to to do Warren what they want to do. People don't. A, a real man doesn't think about doing what he wants to do. A real man thinks about doing what he needs to do, and that means, for the most part, giving up what you feel you want to do. And if you watch the series The Crown, that is very much the dialogue in the series The Crown. The dialogue between." The people who um, accepted the crown as giving up their personal wants, needs, and desires, and doing what made the made the uh, uh, the country of Great Britain f- seem like it was um, I- infallible, that it was godlike and god connected. Um, but in the process of doing that, no one could admit their faults, their fears, their uh, expressed feelings that were um, deviant, deviant from that would undermine the feeling of. Uh, of the Crown as being almighty and um and all and perfect and something to live up to. And so uh, these these are very, um, very powerful themes that run deeply through multiple cultures and manifest in different ways that is so important to know about in order to free yourself from the fact that, you know, the, we still today, and um, this is 2021 we're talking, we still have male-only draft registration. If you have an 18-year-old son, uh, you have a son that's required to register for the draft In the possibility that some someday that we may need that the, your uh, uh, people for a war effort in larger numbers than we currently do. And then all your sons are registered and they will be called upon, but your daughters do not need to get registered. Your daughters, in, um, in order to get the privilege to vote, don't need to be anything but being a human being, a man who doesn't um, uh, uh, register for the draft. Um, is is not is will be put in prison. Um, he has a quarter million dollar fine. Uh, in forty two states, he won't even be able to get a driver's license. He won't be able to go to any colleges, or college or university that has federal funding, and that's almost every college and university. Um, and so th- these are enormous responsibilities that men take on today, even even today. Um, with, uh, that women do not take on. Um, and then we say, men are the oppressors, men have male privilege. And if we wanted to really look at that carefully, we would just ask, okay, uh, if we since we've been a country since um, 1789, uh, let's go ahead and for the next few hundred years, uh, we'll have only women um, fight uh, on, in, be required to uh, register for the draft, and only and women will be the ones who will go to war at the nineties five percent level and men will um will stay home and be protected um uh, from the enemies and take care of the children and we can we can learn to love and be loved and you can learn to kill and be killed uh Mm -hmm. we'll reverse roles and then we and if you did agree to reverse those roles would you call that female privilege that is a very good that is a very good question i i you know when if
0: you really flip things upside down, if you go through that thought experiment, you know, how durable is this notion of privilege? What is it actually based on? Is it based on an actual critical observation of society? Or is it based on some, um, I guess, emotional processing of society versus looking at it rationally?
2: Yes. I mean, if we were to, if I were to continue that, and this is something that I uh, talk about, um, I I have a whole section in a book called The Myth of Male Power" that describes um, you know, if, if we were to reverse roles, uh, what would, uh, and, and it was, a, and the patriarchy, quote unquote, was designed to benefit men um, here is the way the patriarchy would look like. Um, Mm. it would be women would really desire male sexuality and males would be very resistant to being sexual and women would have to pay the bill in order to get men to, um, soften up and have some drinks and to be, uh, open up to actually being, um, come on to by the woman. And if the woman came on too quickly, we'd call her a sexual harasser or a date rapist. If Mm. she didn't come on quickly enough, we'd call her a wimp um, and ignore her. Um, we we would be expected to re- reject her a few few times because when we rejected her, uh, this would help her, us decide how a woman handled rejection, and so we, so it would be functional for us to say no, and so and she would have to deal with the rejection after the rejection and the desiring of sexuality more than we desired sexuality, and paying for the bills that that um, that built the bridge uh, for us to be as receptive to sex as she was, and this is just one of a hundred you know, roles that I reverse um, and ask people to think about which one has the privilege and which one has the power.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's quite challenging to, to think about these things because in some ways we're sort of, I guess we're not really permitted to actually look at the really hard biological realities that separate the differences between men and women. For example, that uh, men going off into combat, men being drafted into war, and, uh, and how that doesn't come from a desire to oppress women, that comes from a desire to protect women. Because we don't want to be sending our women off to get blown to bits. That's something that, that we don't technically want to be sending men off to do that either. But if one of, a, if one of the sexes has to do that, let's have, it, let's have it be men. And then on the other side of things, to look at it and to say that, well, this whole, this whole um, romance and, and mating dance, um, so much of it, the, the power is actually placed in, into women's hands and men are actually okay with that. You know, this is our own thing that we that we work with, that we struggle with, that we grow through to learn how to accept reaction, uh, rejection as you say, and and that's okay. And this is not something that's reflective of male power. These are not roles that are conditioned into men or to women. It's just kind of how it's always been and it's observable in the animal kingdom. As well, and yet somehow saying that is controversial. Like you can look at nature, and these things are pretty true. You know, it's not the it's not the, the females of the of the tribe of chimpanzees that go to war; it's the males, and, and that whole and that thing. But somehow it's controversial when you apply these things to humans.
2: Yes, yes, it is, especially because we're trying to fit these realities or these understandings into a framework that people like myself created, um, in the, um, in the beginning of the feminist movement. And, you know, I, I got involved with the now in 1969, 1970. And at that time, you know, we had, um, we had the civil rights movement and that uh, civil rights movement emanated from a concept of oppressors and oppressed. And many of the uh, early feminists were quite Marxist in their orientation. And, the, and that came from a belief that people who earned more money were generally the oppressors and people who earned less were the working class and the oppressed. And so who earned more money between men and women as a rule? Men earned more money. Um, but so instead of looking at the, uh, the fact that men earned more money... As the obligation that men felt to, to earn that money that that as I said somebody else spent while they died sooner, uh, we looked at it as oh the person that earned more money well, must be like the in Marxism the oppressor, and mm-hmm. um, and the other and women therefore must be oppressed by men, and so we we started developing a lot of things around that belief system and trying to fit things into that belief system. So when men did turn out to earn more money than women did, we just allowed ourselves to think that that must be for the same work. And in fact, as we never learned how to measure what the same work is. Mm-hmm. And what it turns out is that men don't earn much more money than women do and when they do, it is not for the same work, it's for work that has 25 differences that I discussed in very great depth and with enormous footnotes in uh, why men earn more and what uh, the, the truth behind the pay gap and what um, women can do about it. And so, um, but the gap is not between men and women per se, the gap in pay is between fathers and mothers. Mm-hmm. It's when men and women have children that women start reorienting their career to focus more on how to create the balance that that she or he wishes between uh, raising the children and raising money. And so, um, most women have the, the develop as they discover that they're pregnant. Um, if they're middle class women and they're they're married, uh, they develop three options. Option one is uh, I'm gonna work full-time. Option Mm -hmm. two is I'm gonna be full-time with the children. Option three is I'm gonna do some combination of both. Mm -hmm. And the data shows exactly that, that 40% of women with children uh, when they're married work full-time 40 percent um, are full-time with the children and 20 percent uh, work part-time mm-hmm. whereas the husband generally uh, will be very different he'll sort of say okay sweetie whatever you want to do let's we'll have a dinner party and we'll talk about what those options mean to the to the woman and the man will sit there and he j- would say very little or nothing except to support his wife and basically begin to say to himself, Well, if my, no matter what my wife does, I have three options too. And option one is I can work full time. Option two is I can work full time. And option three is I can work full time. Mm -hmm. Or in more specific reality, if he's a working class man, it usually means working two jobs. If he's Mm a, uh, if he's an upper middle class or upper middle class man, he'll work uh, one job more intensely. Or what happens so frequently in the hundreds of men's groups I've started is men saying, when we had children, I was before we had children I was doing music gigs and I was bringing in a fair amount of money but not much I mean not I was bringing in some money but not enough to support more than myself and then only marginally but mm-hmm. my wife and i lived in a small place and you know and she earned a decent amount so we could survive on my music uh, um, i could hold my own on my music gigs um and then or he's an artist the same thing he's an actor the same thing uh he's a writer the same thing he's an elementary school teacher the same thing um but then the uh that elementary school teacher has a child and says wow, I can make a lot, I can make more in, as an administrator. I hate administration, mm-hmm. but I love teaching. So I'll give up my passion because the, uh, being an administrator um, pays more, even though I have to work more. And it gets me involved in all the rigmarole of uh, parents arguing and, um, and having to do administrative junk that I hate to do. Um, but nevertheless, I have a child and I have a wife and I have a responsibility. So what does he do? He gives up being that elementary school teacher to become that um, administrator. And then the feminists, we uh, accused him of being, ah, look at the school system. You know, all the lowly, un- less paid people are teachers uh, and women uh, to a greater degree. And the men are the superintendents of schools and the men are the principals in, in these uh, in the 70s. And um that just shows you that men just grab the power, um, mm-hmm. and and what we did is we uh, we reluctantly, but didn't say anything about our reluctance. We reluctantly agreed to do what we knew we needed to do to to make our the lives, to give our children opportunities we knew they wouldn't have unless we earned more money to move them into a better community, into better schools, with a nicer home, uh, that, that you know, the sister and brother could have rooms of their own, and um, and so on, and so that and so we in the feminist movement gave men not only no credit, but we we reversed it. And called them oppressors because, or had, had that they had male privilege because they were now earning more money than than um, their, their wives were earning. And this is, you know, the the and the the real crime on this is how how it misunderstands men uh, when when men are told we are needed, uh, we are willing to do anything. Uh, when we're told we're needed, we are willing to. Um, go to um, go to war as each generation had its war. We're willing to die when Uncle Sam says I need you. When a woman says, you know, I I fall in love with the officer and the gentleman, never the private and the pacifist. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And uh, we're men were, we blamed men for doing the wars, but we we marry the women married the officers and the gentlemen, not the privates and the pacifists. Mm. And so we. We we gave men such extraordinary mixed messages, and in the last fifty years, the only thing we've basically done is it always has been a battle of the sexes. But in the last half century, it hasn't been. It's really been a war in which only one side has shown up, and mm-hmm. men have put their heads in the sand and hoped the bullets would miss. and um, And it's now time, I feel, for men to speak up and share their feelings, and um, and and begin to recognize that um that actually women like men who speak up actually um even though they will argue almost to the you know the figurative death um <laughs> with the man uh, who disagrees with the, with the, the the feminist perspectives very frequently
0: i've got a thousand questions but i think the one that's uh, that's surfacing most is you, you use the word we um when you describe we the feminists, you know, set that set that mm-hmm. up, and and um, when you use that word, it just makes you wonder. You've developed these, I guess, I would call them rhetorical frameworks, or or perhaps if we're speaking in the language of war, it's ideological weapons that have such incredible staying power. This notion that men became the oppressors and women are the oppressed, and somehow somehow though they're based on. Misunderstandings of reality, potentially falsehoods or ideological viewpoint—they have this really powerful sticking ability in our minds. And I'm just curious, since you were there at some of the inception of some of these ideas, what do you think accounts for the for the power of these? I guess we'll use weapons or ideas. What what accounts for the way that they just they seem to have stayed with us, and we have such trouble deprogramming ourselves from them? I suppose,
2: ideal, uh, individually and collectively. First of all, I use the word we because I want to take responsibility for my being part of a process that created misunderstandings between the sexes, even though I you know, I was being paid a great deal of money to um to um to do something that people thought was very insightful in my understandings of the sexes. But mm-hmm. It is also true, you know. They started some three hundred men's groups, and it didn't take too long for me to, as I started listening to the men as opposed to lecturing to the men. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I started hearing a different perspective, and as I started to introduce that perspective to my largely feminist audiences, the um, I got less and less, uh, fewer and fewer standing ovations, um, fewer and fewer invitations to uh, new speaking engagements. When I first started speaking. Um, my, I think my average number of references that I would receive after speaking engagements was about five more references, mm-hmm. um, and so, um, I, and fortunately, I built a fairly decent income the, over those years that I was able to use to sustain myself when I lost all my speaking engagements, um, and mm-hmm. because I started to integrate uh, the feelings and fears that men had as well. Um, But it certainly became very unpopular to do that. But I say we because I was responsible for at least a few years in spreading the um, male, the oppressor, you know, uh, women, the oppressed, and um, and following that sort of um, hierarchical um, uh, arrangement between the sexes, as opposed to recognizing that uh, neither sex, his, my parents, you know, neither sex, neither of them talked about rights uh, when I was growing up. They, uh, you know, they just all focused, my mom and dad both focused on the responsibilities that they had. Uh, my mom was overwhelmed by those responsibilities, but that's a different issue. Um, both sexes um, have, uh, you know, committed suicide and, um, you know, been depressed uh, from the overwhelm that they had with their their portion of that responsibility.
0: Mm-hmm. And I just want to honor you for your taking of accountability for your participation in this because that's something that. I think uh, people in general, humans in general, have really struggled with is to say, no, I participated, I accept accountability openly in the sunlight, and I'll even take a hit to my income if it means standing up for what I believe in, literally at the highest level, or the, at the deep, deepest level, depending on how you look at it, in terms of you know your depth within the movement that, you know, it's, it takes a lot of courage, <clears throat> excuse me, it takes a lot of courage to stand up and say, no, I was a part of this, and I participated, and and just to say it today, and at the time, to say no, I won't do this
2: anymore, even at great personal cost. And so that's yes. a that's a rare bit of courage. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. And I I once did myself the disservice of estimating, um, sitting down with a piece of paper <laughs> and and doing a, a reasonable estimate of what I thought that the financial cost was, and it turns out to be somewhere somewhere between 8 and 30 million dollars depending on oh, how God. whether I was conservative or liberal in my calculations wow. um but as you know you've been to my home and I live mm-hmm. in a decent home in a nice community and I um, and I have nothing to complain about and, and and I've been fortunate enough to marry um I was previously married to a wonderful woman who was um a, a good earner and my wife of the last, and my partner of the last 27 years um, has mm-hmm. been um you know a wonderful contributor to um to making it possible for me to not feel i had to you know earn uh, a huge amount of money in order to be able mm-hmm. to um uh, to to um do make the contributions i do mm-hmm. and liz is awesome as well and, and but, I, well, I think yes from- my wife is named liz yeah. yes and when- we go by uh, elizabeth warren uh, she's mm-hmm. liz and i'm more elizabeth warren <laughs> exactly. there you go
0: <laughs> And I, th- I think also, you know, in addition to all the calculations is that you can sleep at night, you know, that you made the right decision for the right reasons. And and that's, that's priceless. Like you can't, I mean, maybe you could buy that back for $30 million. I don't know. But um, I think that's something that gets overlooked in, in the lives of men is like, can you actually, can you live with yourself? You know, and, and that's, I think that has a significance
2: beyond what can be estimated on a spreadsheet. Yes, I, I do think that most human beings figure out a way of living with themselves by rationalizing whatever they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but um, I'm, I feel very fortunate to have um, been able to deeply engage in looking, staying compassionate toward women, uh, loving women enormously still, and at the same time saying um, it, it's in women's, it's in a mother's interest to spend time understanding what a dad contributes to raising a child, and uh, because when she understands the, you know, the nine or ten differences between dad style and mom style, uh, that uh, she can then see, uh, and he, then he feels valued and needed as a dad. When men feel valued and needed, we come to bat. Um, And when a a man comes to bat and takes responsibility for raising the child fully, uh, all the burden is not on a woman. When I dated between um, marriages, uh, there was a period of time that I was single and almost every woman I dated was a mother. And the word that was used most frequently was the word overwhelm. Mm -hmm. Um, And almost all single moms feel overwhelmed. And particularly working single moms feel like they don't do what they could do at work and that makes them down on themselves and they don't do what they could do with their children and that makes them feel guilty. And so that's really a very, um, and, and that's a price that women do not have to pay if men in the society are stepping up to be fully involved dads. But men will not step up to be fully involved dads if they're disrespected all the time and the mother feels that, um, oh, um, he's uh, my, uh, the, my husband, the father of my children, um, uh, just let the, uh, this, my son or daughter go to the playground. And, um, and, and, and they didn't stay with them at the playground. They went back and watched their football game or whatever. Um, and that just goes to show you they care more about football, let's say, um, mm-hmm. or the basketball playoffs than they do about the children. I can't trust it as opposed to saying, what was your rationale in letting our nine-year-old child be unprotected by at the, on the playground while she or he was seeking to play basketball, a pickup game of basketball? And the dad will often say, um, "I wanted them to um, be able to make decisions on their own. Um, I didn't. If you overprotect somebody, uh, then you, um, during their growing up years, then when they're on their own, they will enter the world." That is much tougher than than we are as parents. They'll enter that world unprotected, um, knowing, never knowing how to protect themselves, no, never knowing how to think for themselves. If my child comes back from the playground with a black eye, um, I want to be able to talk with my child about, you know, what were the red flags that you saw? Was there some older child, uh, older older kid, um, bullying people around? Uh, when it when it came to fouling each other did did the did that did the older kids just foul each other without any consideration um was there somebody drinking was there somebody um you know and I want to process those i want to talk with my son or my daughter about what was happening there that led to that fight that led to that black eye, and that will educate my child um, as to how to protect herself or himself if I was there. I would have seen those signals, and I would have intervened, and my child would never have had. Yes, they'd ever had the black eye, but never have had the experience of knowing how to um, do the types of things it takes to prevent that black eye. And that's just, you know, one of a dozen examples that I talk about in the Boy Crisis book about, you know, the difference between dad style parenting and mom style parenting. And it's not that dad style parenting is the best. It's, the, it's that the best parenting is checks and balance parenting. Mom's talking about more likely to talk about the risks of sending their child to the playground alone. Dad's talking more about the, um, the benefits of that in the long run. And then mom and dad having a discussion that, you know, that maybe minimizes the risks and, ma- and maximizes the benefits. Um, you know, a child that wants to climb the tree, and dad and mom says, "No, sweetie, not now. Maybe in a few years you can climb the tree, but right now you're too young. You're likely to fall." Dad says, "Okay, but be careful." And mom and dad get into an argument, and you know, and then they come to a conclusion. If they have a, an argument where they really hear each other, which is what I recommend them doing, um, and as um, um, that the child might be willing, might be able to climb the tree but only up to a certain point and not on certain branches. And dad has to be out there under the tree in case the child does fall. And dad has to give up his cell phone while he's um, out there under the tree so he doesn't get preoccupied and Mm -hmm. lose control. So that might be an example of a type of compromise, which is an example of checks and balance parenting.
0: Hi, everyone. I hope you're enjoying my interview with Dr. Warren Farrell as much as I am. Once again, at the end of October in Orlando, Florida, I'll be speaking at the 21 Convention, the world's premier conference for men and masculinity. As you've heard by now, the conference has added the 21 Convention Patriarchs event, especially for husbands and fathers, as well as the 22 Convention for women. This year, I'll be speaking at both the 21 Convention and the 22 Convention. At 21, I'll be talking to men about the power of shame in our lives and my guidance for how to overcome it. The title of my talk is Waking Up on the Battlefield. And at the 22 convention, I'll be speaking to women about the depths of men's minds and hearts, explaining to them how, in the words of Alison Armstrong, we aren't just hairy versions of women, and why what we're doing across the hall matters. And I'll be joining a huge and expanding list of accomplished speakers, including Ian Smith of Attila's Gym in New Jersey, Jack Donovan, Pastor Michael Foster, Tanner Guzzi, Alexander Cortez, Dr. Sean T. Smith, Elliot Hulse. Socrates, Professor Janice Fiamengo, lawyer Melissa Isaac, YouTuber Jennifer Molesky, plus more than I can even list. In the description, I've provided links to all of the 21 Summit events, or you can visit the21convention.org and enter the code WILLS25 at checkout for 25% off any ticket price, including to the 22 Convention. I recommend the VIP tickets, which includes five nights on-site stay in the hotel's lovely rooms, which I've personally seen, front-of-house reserved seating, an exclusive VIP-only dinner with the speakers, and much more. At 21, you can meet me in person, along with 10 members of my incredible Renaissance of Men team from around the country, and even from the UK. Also, all tickets are Bring a Friend free. That's right, if it's the first time your friend has attended any of the conferences, they can come with you free of charge. Click the links in the description for each of the 21 events and enter the code ask 25 That's WillS25 for 25% off any ticket. Prices will continue to go up the closer we get to the conference, and I only have a limited number of these discounts left. So act now to secure the lowest price. Thanks so much, and let's get back to the podcast with Dr. Warren Farrell. You remind me of the work of Alison Armstrong, who was uh, on my podcast a couple weeks ago. And I've had the chance to become friends with. And, and she says something very similar to what you do. In fact, it's, it's almost like the, um, it's almost the mirror image of it coming from the pers- perspe- perspective of a woman where she says, women have to not emasculate their husbands and ask themselves, what if there's a good reason behind what he's doing? Well, this mm-hmm. thing that I may criticize him for, that I may emasculate him, emasculate him for, well, what if there's a good reason? What if there's a good reason why he's telling uh, Jimmy or Jane to, to climb the tree? you know, to, to learn that resilience to, to, you know, to confront that fear instead of the default perspective uh, that it seems that many women or perhaps many mothers have. And, in, and, in, uh, you know, we'll say in being generous in, in their protective nature saying, Oh no, we can't let the child do that. And dad is default wrong. It's like, well, no, get, get curious, ask mm-hmm. like, well, what if there's a good reason and don't, and don't cut them off at the knees, so to speak by default, like ask and understand that your parenting styles they're designed to work in cooperation with each other, not one dominate over the other. And so we see the return of the Marxist idea of, you know, oppressor just in the home. And so we have to, you know, overthrow the oppressor even in the own home, which is seems to me to be profoundly destructive.
2: Yes, and I completely agree with that, with one slight exception, uh, mm-hmm. which I don't like to use the word emasculate because what that word does in most people's minds. And when women talk about, oh, we don't want to emasculate him, there's a sort of contempt that the woman has. Like, I have to protect his fragile ego is what goes along in many women's minds with the word emasculate. Oh, I don't want to emasculate him. Oh, I have to little uh, protect his fragile ego. Um, so I would, I would skip past that and then go right and then not only go to the reasons, um, me of, of asking the man about the reasons. I think that's a good approach, but when but i'm i'm saying to men also men you need to take responsibility for knowing the reasons you do what you do that is you you know in the, and that's why i tried to be very specific about this in the boy crisis book um so for example in the example i just gave i've never heard a man say to a woman um you know when a child climbs a tree the 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 data shows that his Synapses start firing, um, and 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 that increases that child's IQ. And so, and dads never read things like the book. Well, they don't never. They never. Many dads read the Boy Crisis book, but not enough of the average dad does things like read about what what is my natural intuitive style, and what are the benefits of it that are proven. And then let me take responsibility a for doing that reading to begin with, and then explaining that in a loving way to my the wife or the mother, and then from there beginning to um, uh, to, to work to work on that um, in such a way that um, uh, we we she and I negotiate um, what what the value of that is. And the the brief point there is that women can't hear what men don't say, mm-hmm. and we men. Have to take responsibility for doing our homework, knowing what to say, how to listen, and how to negotiate a win-win situation with our wives, and that's that's when we become real partners. Yeah, women can't hear
0: what men don't say. Is another title of one of your books. I love it. We're going through all of your books right now. This, <laughs> this, <laughs> directly, is, yes. this is perfect. Yeah, exactly. So, and and uh, that's one that I that I haven't encountered, but the title kind of says it all in a way that like. Yeah, you have to know men why you are, why men are the way they are is another book of yours. Mm -hmm. You're responsible for self-knowledge and to be able to communicate that to your wives and to trust and and know yourself in order to really show up in the home. And uh, I think, and and this is the really, this is what I love about your work is that it it has this really great sense of nuance and and threading this needle between you are encouraging to men and supportive of men and obviously very pro-men without becoming anti-women you know, with, with being very loving and very caring. And that comes across in your writing for both men and women equally. And I think that's very powerful because it's, it can be very difficult to strike that balance in a way that's a, that I, I guess you would say is appealing to both, to both sexes.
2: And you do that very well. Thank you. Yeah. For me, I, I genuinely feel that um, when only one sex wins, both sexes lose and, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're really all in the same family boat. And, um, you know, what, what, what my relationship with a, uh, a, uh, my wife is, is, is about love. And so I want to, I want to, and as you know, I do couples communication workshops and have for 30 years and have now produced a couples, uh, Zoom course so that people don't have to pay a fortune to attend the workshops. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and that's, you know, if, if anyone listening is interested in that, um, you know, just email me at warren at com, and, um, I'll, you know, give you more information about the Zoom course, but it's, a, it's a way to, um, to allow, People to have a whole course about what they can do to hear each other more effectively uh, without um, without paying the type of price you'd pay it for a therapist to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. What sort of things do you typically encounter in these communication courses? Like the the top three themes that you see that you see couples struggling with.
2: The the single biggest problem for almost all couples is our inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. That's mm-hmm. the, I'd say, the Achilles heel of almost all human beings is our inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, active listening was designed to help the person with the complaint feel heard. However, it's biologically natural to be defensive, and the person who, um, is hearing criticism, um, if if something isn't done to do a workaround to that biologically natural propensity to be defensive, then the person who's that person who's hearing the criticism can repeat the criticism, but inside of themselves, they're feeling angry and defensive. Um, that doesn't that's 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 doesn't help. And people when they have when they've learned active listening, they do it quite well with a the therapist. But they almost never do it on their own, and mm-hmm. so what the work I do in in the role mate to soulmate um, couples communication course, the work I do is designed to um, be f- to do a, have a conflict free zone, 166 hours a week, and during that 166 hours a week. Um, I teach people how to sustain that conflict-free zone because conflicts, because criticisms and, um, will come up and I try, I teach people how to prevent those from, um, going from criticism to, to conflict. Um, and then, but in that other two hours a week, I teach people how to do a caring and sharing time. And during that caring and sharing time, they, uh, before they hear their partner's criticism, They go, they take themselves out of their natural defensive state into an unnatural meditative alternative state in which before they hear their partner's criticism, they meditate into things like saying, um, if my part, if I provide a safe environment for my partner's anger, for my partner's, um, exaggerations, for my partner's distortions, if I provide a safe environment for that, my partner will feel safer and safer with me. If she or he feels safer and safer with me, they'll feel more loved by me. If they feel more loved by me, they'll feel more love for me. So they meditate into six other meditations like that. Most of the other ones are more personalized. And um, And at the end of that process, for maybe a half hour or so, they are able to emotionally associate their partner's criticism or concern uh, with the opportunity to be more deeply loved. Mm. And so that allows the partner not just to say what I heard you say, but to feel completely secure that this process is going to deepen our love and therefore I don't need to run away from it, I need to invite it happening. Mm-hmm. It's much it's more complex it's much more complex than that, but that's mm-hmm. sort of you know the the tip of the iceberg.
0: Yeah, well I mean you would have to do a whole course to really go into it, and need more than yeah. you know, two to three minutes. I mean, these is, these are the sort of things that need to be experienced and worked through in real time, you know, like riding a bike or mastering any skill. It's the skill of it's the skill of relating um in in a in a space of Love and, and I guess we might say consensus building between partners and you know how do you move through move into and through conflict to some greater re- resolution that serves both people? That's not something that people are generally taught, especially not in relationships. You know where our, our media tends to focus on the, the honeymoon phase and the wedding is the end of the movie. And yes. Like, well, no, the, the wedding is the beginning of the movie.
2: <laughs> so, you yeah, know, that's, that's but we don't get that part in the movies to absolutely. model for us. So falling falling in love is biologically natural. Sustaining love is biologically unnatural,
0: mm-hmm. and it's another so, one of those sound
2: bites. <laughs> so, what the couples you know, what the role mate to soul mate course is about is learning how to sustain love, and um, and the, the good news about uh, you know the very you know the everything has a, um, a silver lining, and one silver lining that created uh, for, that was created for me with um, the couples communication course is that when all the couples cu- courses were canceled during COVID. Um, I was able to have the time to produce, put that course on Zoom, and so people now not not only have, can go through the entire course by themselves with their partner, but also when they miss things or when uh, they can go back mm-hmm. and review it and review it again and um, have it there to be their their um, unpaid guide um, or or the, a guide that you don't need to put out money for each time you um, consult it.
0: But you should have a, a rewind button installed on your forehead, Warren. Just like oh, teach. <laughs> so this is this is perfect because that leads right into uh, your most recent book, The Boy Crisis. Because I think in this breakdown of couples' communication that's that's been happening, um, this has had very specific effects on on children, and uh, it's manifesting writ large in our society. And uh, I think The Boy Crisis sort of documents them quite thoroughly um, and uh, and very compellingly. So this is, this would be perfect because how does this, how does this couples communication play into raising
2: children and particularly boys or the lack of raising children, I guess you might say. Yes, I think the couples communication, what it does at its best is to um, provide a space for the differences between dad style parenting and mom style parenting to be discussed. With an understanding of the best intent of their partner, so um, what we were talking about before uh, about Ms. Armstrong, Dr. Armstrong and and saying that you know uh, not only be curious uh, about what your partner's best intent is and what their purpose is, but both do your homework, understand what is the you know what is the value of climbing a tree what is the value of roughhousing very few people know that the value you know that one thing that happens with roughhousing when done well is that the roughhousing increases your children's ability to be empathetic mm-hmm. it also increases your children's ability to have postponed gratification when done right and so a knowing how to do roughhousing correctly and knowing what leads to your child being more empathetic and by, by roughhousing and knowing what leads to your child having postponed gratification. But when you say to your child, um, no more pushing your daughter, your sister around or sticking your elbow in your sister's eye. Um, you know, that's not, that's not okay to win at roughhousing. And if you, and if we, if you do that again, we'll stop the roughhousing. And then the child having this bond that's created from roughhousing, this desire to have more excitement in roughhousing. And then um, and then, when you, but when she or he persists on doing the rough, uh, that roughhousing being too rough, um, the father or the mother, usually the father, stops the roughhousing. And when the children said, okay, okay, I got it now. I won't, do, I won't do that again. The dad says, no, you had your warning. You didn't pay attention to that warning. You tried to take advantage of still winning. So we'll, there'll be no more roughhousing tomorrow, until tomorrow night. That tells the children that I have to learn postpone gratification. That that is, I have to postpone the gratification of pushing my sister or brother out of the way so I can win at roughhousing. And um, because if I don't do that, I won't get what I want in the long run, which is more roughhousing. Mm -hmm. And so the gratification is the roughhousing, the sacrifice, the postponed gratification is that you can't get that by just pushing someone out of the way. So you're learning the difference between being assertive and aggressive and learning, you're learning how to think of your brother's and sister's feelings, not just your own. And you're learning postponed gratification. Now, almost no father says to a mother, I want to be doing more roughhousing so that my children can learn postpone gratification, empathy, and the distinctions between uh, being assertive and aggressive. (laughs) No. But but that needs to be communicated because then the mother knows a few things. One is you've really done some, your homework, you've really done some thinking about it. You really care about the children and you're worth paying attention to, Uh, not just not just what the mother is inclined to think, which is, um, you know, here's one more child I have to monitor. Mm -hmm. And I I think what also is really powerful is is, is how
0: much children can be incentivized by roughhousing, how they actually need that. You know, we have a little bit of a safety culture that's developed where it's like, okay, well, you know, we don't want to, I grew up in, you know, without a whole lot of roughhousing, I didn't get to climb trees. I was very much, uh, you know, I was very, I was very much raised to, to be, I guess perhaps too careful, and i had to I had to work to, that out of my to, to to do a podcast yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> I, was raised, I was I was raised to podcast <laughs> born to podcast so, so but, but children really do long for that with their fathers and they really do long for that kind of connection and it's so counterintuitive but it, but in a way it isn't that 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 does actually teach kids empathy and boundaries and how to recognize the other in terms of one's own free expression. But you're right. A father would never say that like, oh honey, I'm teaching the kids this. It's like, but a father might know that on some level, but not on some level, but not be able to articulate
2: it. Yes. Most fathers just sort of sense that the kids love it and it creates mm -hmm. a bond with the kids and that that bond allows them to have more leverage in doing other sort of forms of discipline or instructions and so on. And that's about as far as most fathers' thinking goes on that issue. In part, and part, this is not even to you know to blame fathers either. To you know, I started looking for these things when I was doing the research for the boy crisis. I started looking over parenting magazines, and um, I couldn't find anything on the dad style parenting, um, and so, and certainly not anything on you know the connection between roughhousing and, and the development of empathy. Um, and you know, I'm a scientist, and if, if I don't find the science behind that, I'm not Going to say it, um, mm-hmm. you know, unless I tell you in the in the boy crisis book that it's you know this is my intuition or something like that. I'll put mm-hmm, it sure. at that level. Um, but the um, but these are things that that you know, that, so I'm not blaming dads for not knowing this because, you know, um, dads can't hear what, you know, the, the media doesn't say. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so the reason I found the boy crisis book so necessary to write is basically, it's a, you know, a 400 page book filled with things that, um, that are not in the everyday media, um, things that I feel that will really help deepen the communication or what I call the checks and balance parenting between mothers and fathers.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could speak just really quickly about uh, dad brain, because I think that was also a very powerful point of the book about what happens to fathers' minds and, and bodies really as they become as they move from men into fatherhood. I suppose.
2: Yes, we we did know before I um, did the research for the boy crisis book that when men get married, that their testosterone level goes down and their estrogen level goes up, which is probably a biological thing, to you know. To to make it more a little bit less likely that men will want to have affairs and will be able to you know be involved with the family. What we didn't know is that when a child a new child is born, that there is uh, something that, that can briefly be called a dad brain is a whole nest of neurons that run parallel to the nest of neurons that that is uh, associated with the motherhood instinct that when a dad sees a baby born, uh, begin to all connect in a way that is uh, an equivalent to the motherhood instinct, a sort of fatherhood instinct. It actually, uh, th- there's the inactive dormant uh, neurons um, begin to fire and a dad brain, what could be called a dad brain, develops. Now, that dad brain develops a little bit if the dad interprets the... Um, the his responsibilities when the child is born as working harder at work and experience what experiencing what I call the father's catch22 uh, which is the father feeling he needs to love the family by being away from the love of his family. If he feels that the birth of the child creates more obligation to work, there's only a minimal development of the dad brain however if his if the child's if the dad's interpretation of that child being born is that i want to be fully involved in that child's growth development and nurturance yes i'll work um but that's not the only thing i'm going to do i'm going to be home early i'm going to i'm i'm not going to my father refused a number of promotions so he could he did not so he did not have to work so much and be away from us so much. Um, and so and, and so if the father takes that type of attitude toward his child, then that dad brain develops very actively, very fully. And those are, you know, some, it's one of the types of things, you know, there's so much science in the Boy Crisis book that I had no idea was true. I, I had no idea that, that at the age of nine and a half, the degree to which a child has a father involved is the degree to which the telomeres of a child, uh, the telomeres are the are inside of every cell, and telomeres have thousands of little um, sub cells in them that um, that that develop that prevent you from getting cancer or diabetes or other diseases, heart attacks, and um, and the longer they are, the that's the single biggest predictor. The length of your telomeres is the single biggest predictor of the length of time that you will live. By the age of nine and a half, we can already make that prediction. What I didn't know is that the that children with a significant amount of father involvement have telomeres that are forty percent, um fourteen um, percent longer mm-hmm. than children who do not have significant amount of father involvement at the age of nine and a half. However, I got that forty percent figure from the fact that males who have father involvement, their their telomere, telomeres are then again 40% longer than the females mm. increase in telomeres. And so father's involvement is important to both sexes on the telomere level at the 14% level of increasing the size of the telomeres. But for boys, 40% even more than it is for girls. And that's mm. really a perfect metaphor for the importance of father involvement in childhood development at a level that i had no idea was true before i started doing the research for the boy crisis it's so it's so
0: fundamental even down to the the root biological level our most yes. you know
2: yes. fundamental the, the the interconnection between our minds our behaviors and how our body responds is one of the most fascinating things that science is beginning to uncover Um, And, and, and it's the reason that every social scientist needs to be as much of a scientist as social. Um, And we need to, we need to really understand both. I want to be sensitive to
0: your time because you've been very generous mm-hmm. to speak with me today but I wonder if you would indulge me just one more question. Yes. And I would like to I'd like to hear you speak a bit about father warriors because it's a concept that you bring up I believe in the boy crisis and I think that is so important to help men understand how, you know, you don't have to make a choice. In fact, I was just talking to my my friend Jonathan who became a new father a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago about the, the difference in paths between the, you know, uh, the, the householder and the warrior as it was framed mm-hmm. to me in, in some readings that I had done. And I was ex- explaining to him like, no, you can actually put those two together and we kind of have to in the concept of the father warrior, which I got from you. So I wonder if you could speak about that, please.
2: Yes. Um, when I did the boy crisis book, I um, spoke at the, um, I briefed the White House on, on the book and, um, and talked with them about developing a father warrior program, which they never did. Um, but they were excited about it and sh- short of putting it into uh, action. And the concept of a father warrior program is that, uh, w- w- when we told boys to be warriors at war, to risk their lives, to kill and be killed, boys stepped up being willing to be disposable as part of masculinity at the core de- the core definitional the core defining characteristic of masculinity is the is the willingness to be disposable on behalf of your country and or a willingness to be disposable on behalf of your family, taking the, all the almost all the hazardous jobs, and ninety three percent of the workplace deaths being um, uh, happening to, to to males, and so that's um, and so we've always defined warrior in that way, but today um, in order to be a full time dad or be open to being a full time dad. You really have to be a warrior to fight all the prejudices in the culture about, oh, he's a full-time dad. Maybe he's not even um, able to work. Um, maybe he's sort of just lazy. Um, and or as a full-time mom does not get that response. And so I'm saying we need to start Father Warrior, w- warrior W-A-R-R, mm-hmm. um, not Warrior, <laughs> the, um, programs uh, that we begin to, to to work to start the development for in um, in first grade, with teaching communication skills program, uh, communication skills in in first grade, so that fathers and mothers can learn how to communicate more effectively, have good emotional intelligence, and to to men, we're saying this is going to be prepare you to overcome all the resistances, prejudices in the in the in the society toward being a full-time dad as an option, not as an expectation, but as an option. And um and prepare you, even if you aren't a full-time dad, um, but just to be an equally involved father, um, so that a mo- and 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 will allow mothers to know that when they marry you, uh, that this is a man that is prepared both emotionally in terms of his emotional intelligence, his communication skills, and his attitude that fathers are needed. That the single, um, when I did the research for the boy crisis, I started out with 10 uh, causes of the boy crisis. I found out that by far and away, the largest cause of the boy crisis was uh, was dad deprivation. That basically the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. And so as I saw all the things that evolved out of that, boys without dads were far more likely to commit crimes, far more likely to be the school shooters, far more likely to be the mass shooters, far more likely to join ISIS, far more likely to be suicidal, far more likely to commit homicide, far more likely to take drugs, Far more likely to be addicted to video games, to be addicted to porn, uh, to be addicted to op- opioids, to be addicted to alcohol. Uh, the things that this society falls apart on, 50 and not more than 50 different developmental levels, uh, I saw were more related to dad deprivation than any other single thing. And so, what the Father Warrior program would be about is helping boys and school fathers and schools and mothers understand that it's not just wonderful to have a dad. It is really essential to have a balance between mothering and fathering.
0: And so much of your contributions over the past 40 years to men and masculinity have been exactly about that.
2: Thank you. It's been a wonderful talking with you. You just you ask great questions and then you listen so Attentively, it's really a pleasure. Thank you, Warren. I really
0: appreciate that. Um, uh, where can men go to find out more about you and what you do?
2: Well, I'd say probably the best thing to do is just to like go to Amazon, look up the boy crisis. That's probably the least expensive place to get it. If Mm -hmm. you're, um, if you if money is not an issue, go to a a support your local bookstore or pick it up there. Uh, that's probably a good place to start. In my work, if you're If you've read The Boy Crisis, I'd say the second thing that I would recommend to you is get deeply involved in the myth of male power. Uh, But as you go through the myth of male power, really um, make sure you listen to women rather than just talk to them about the content of the myth of male power. Um, Otherwise, you will be alienating uh, rather than uh, really deepening your love. And that's really what life um, is about. And you're working on an update to that book, uh, a new edition, correct? I am. I'm working on a book. uh, I'll probably call the new book um, "The Paradox of Male Power," but Mm. it probably will not be out till 2023. So, um, but and you know, the the essential ingredients will be the same as is in the myth of male power. But the uh, I'll just be updating it with chapters like um, you know, um, what's new since '92, that type of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Here's that soundbite again. (laughs) Well, thank you so
0: much, Warren. This has been outstanding. it's been really a pleasure talking to you.